0: Wow, I'm very excited. I this is the first time I might be recording this without an echo in my ear, so of myself. <laughs> so I might actually sound
1: uh, it, it, intelligent. Just as you said that, you started you started to pixelate or whatever the word is for that. <laughs> uh, well wow.
0: yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm gonna have to work on my internet connection now. It's it's ironic. You know, it's one thing or another. Um in, in my new shed. Yeah, snack. I
1: um and they're like, Hey, there's a problem with your internet. We want to come out and fix it for you. And I'm like, All right. <laughs> And they did. And the guy, the guy was awesome. He went like, he followed the line from, you know, the backyard into the house place by place by place until he figured out where, Uh, and so far so good. So
0: that's awesome. I, I actually ran an ethernet cable a hundred feet from my fiber, Mm. my sonic fiber hookup all the way to the shed. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole story. I'm getting into like the whole house improvement thing. Yeah. And, um, Anyways, but the Wi-Fi router that I had that was actually at the back of the house that was feeding my my shed is now in a in a Skinner box, basically. It's like in a um, mm. box out front to serve as the router. And so now I have very poor Wi-Fi reception out back. So we'll see. We'll see well, how this goes this time.
1: Shout out to Spectrum for actually coming and fixing my stuff. But um, oh God, if I could have... What, what's your, your one called again out there?
0: We have Sonic. Your,
1: uh, Sonic. Sonic. I've always heard Sonic's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: I mean, I, I will say... Um, you know, and, and this will probably not get in the pod, but, um, the guy that came out, uh, to set up my internet. So this is the day before I closed on buying the house. Um, we actually got the internet set up first. It turned out that the house had ethernet like, uh, set up in all the ports, but they Mm. had the, uh, the end of the ethernet cables hadn't been configured with whatever the little plastic nubs are that actually, you know, connect to the computer or something. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so the guy went around and actually hooked up like eight or nine of these outputs these jacks um you know totally unprompted i had no idea that like sonic would do this it was amazing um so now i actually have ethernet through the house which i was just like through the roof
1: by the way Um, keep keep this in keep this in if you do be the one uh editing this because my, my biggest fear i think i've said on the show before is i buy a house and find out that eventually the internet it's just crap. Or like uh-huh. for some reason, like that would make me sell a house. Like,
0: I, I mean, honestly, when I found out that there was ethernet, I was like through the moon cause I was like, Oh, it's going to be, you know, Wi-Fi is good, but it's not, you know, as reliable. It's not, you know, you're paying for fiber, but you're getting like, you know, you're actually getting like 300 megs. I don't know. It's like not yeah. a big deal, but when you're on video all the time, it kind of matters. So yeah, I was, yeah, I, I'm totally with you. If the internet sucked wherever I lived, I would be very disappointed.
1: Um, Okay. Uh, we, we should be respectful yes, let's, of, let's of jump in. Adam's yes. time. Yes. So go I'm ahead, kick that. it off.
0: Welcome, everybody, to the TechMeme Ride Home Experience for June 17th, 2022. Uh, today, we have a two part conversation. Um, the first part is with Adam Kiesling from Compound. We're going to talk about what to do with your employee equity stock options uh which you know he has this amazing post that goes into all these scenarios and details and we're going to unpack some of that especially now given where the market's at Um, and then the second half is going to be in a totally different direction we're going to talk about dolly which is this this new kind of gpt3 style image composer editor creativity tool anyways it's it's super interesting super exciting
1: and by the way if if we have time, uh we yep. might do a third little segment about uh pouring one out for Internet Explorer, which oh. I figure you you, you would have I, thoughts I have on thoughts. as well I do on have the thoughts. history of Internet Explorer. Yes. So.
0: All right, great. So maybe they'll we uh, do okay, this third round.
1: First, let's let's kick it off with Adam um Adam, welcome. Um uh you're you're at Compound which um is a is a company that helps people in the tech industry deal with their
2: finances and whatnot. If I'm being too
1: simplistic about it, but um just tell tell us real quick about uh, what Compound does.
2: Compound is a what we say is like a full stack financial management platform for tech founders and tech employees in particular. So um, a lot of questions come up around you know exercising equity. How do I manage my money? Um, do I need a financial advisor? How do I file my taxes? What are my tax strategies? Like all of those things, we can help with. And uh, again, we're like soccer forward and and particularly help with this question of like what should I do with my liquid equity?
1: Well, and this is what. Um, I, I discovered, uh, I, I shared it uh, just uh, earlier today in the Weekend Long Reads. Um, you have a big piece out that is specifically talking about what to do right now. Um, we should probably say up, up front that, um, by the way, uh, don't take any uh, f- uh, money advice from this show. Uh, you know, Talk to
2: your, um, your accounting professionals. I'm going to second and third that my compliance officers could be very happy you said that.
1: So. Yes, yes, 100%.
2: We're going to talk in broad
1: strokes. Uh, don't take advice from us. Talk to a professional before you do anything. But so the the, the piece that you wrote, uh, it was for um, our friends at Every. Um, but as I said on, on the long reads today, um, you sort of go through the scenarios uh, that people might be facing right now. And, and maybe what we should do is we should start out thinking about people working at uh, private startups, and then maybe if, if we have time, we can talk about you know public companies because there people there are in a slightly different situation. But so let's just start from the very basics. Um, you know, uh, percentage of the equity for the um, employee pool, for the uh, options pool for for your uh, your workers at at, at your startup, um, and then. Can you just in, in broad strokes outline like the exercising process and like how that works and like when and how generally you're you're buy those options at the price um, that they're offered to you?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. So how how this typically works for employees is you want to join a tech startup, right? And so you go through the interview process, you get an offer, and then like the CEO or the you know head of HR, whoever. Sits you down is like okay, here's here's your salary and cash compensation. I get at the startup, which is the equity compensation, and in that piece, typically what you get is options to buy uh, stock. You don't actually get shares, right? Um, and so what that means is that uh, typically you're granted uh, a number of shares and a strike price. And uh, that's how you can exercise your options. And exercising your options means using that right to exercise to actually purchase your shares. Um, so this is kind of a particularly unique um, situation as startups because, um, you know, in addition to kind of investing your time into your career, which, you know, pretty much everybody does, everybody has to make a living. In startups, you also have this opportunity to invest money into your career, um, which is, you know, a little bit more atypical. So that's maybe like setting the stage.
1: Yeah, and to try to put some like tangible numbers on this, like let's say that you're uh, you join a startup. You're offered I don't know. Let's let's, let's use round numbers to be easy. hundred thousand shares um, at a certain price, and that's what you mentioned the, the the strike price. Let's let's call it your strike price when you you're offered them. Years down the road, your company has done multiple rounds at hopefully an increasing valuation, and so the price of those shares. Um, could be $10, right? And so you have the option if you exercise the option to purchase those 100,000 shares at the dollar um yep. that that's your strike price um and thus in theory and on paper you're instantly it's 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 a little complicated because of dilution and things like that but you you're, you you own that equity and in theory um you you've paid a dollar to make 10, right?
2: Exactly right. Yeah. And so that's that's the kind of nice part about this is that when you're issued options at a strike price, that's typically the fair market value, also called, called a 409 at the time that they're they're granted to you. Uh, and yeah, hopefully the idea is that the company gets more valuable and the share price increases and so that the shares will be worth more later. Uh, and maybe kind of one of the, the really sticky situations that uh, startup employees get into that is, um, again, something we're hopefully trying to solve here in the long term at a compound is um, you actually pay taxes on that difference in the share price, right? So if you have the strike price at $1 when you are granted the, the, uh, the options and then it goes up to 10 uh, that's really good that that value is increased and you'll only pay at the $1 price with the extra set. But then, um, you know, get get tax on the difference between $1 and 10 which would be $9 a share. So uh, And that can be extremely significant, and that's a very large cash expense that you have to pay today. So that could be, you know, five, six, seven figures worth of expense. And, um, and again, the hairy situation is, you know, even a company at Series B, Series E, not necessarily 100% guaranteed to go public get liquidity. So you right. could, you know, pay all this money, not only to exercise your shares, but also to pay the taxes, and you're kind of in this kind of weird situation where it's like, um, yeah, I own something. I'm really excited about the company, but it's like a really large cash expense, and it's not guaranteed.
1: Because again, keeping with these round numbers, I've bought uh, uh, the shares at one dollar. So I've spent a hundred thousand dollars to do it. Which, by the way, you have to. You're buying it, so you have to have that cash to exercise the option. And then um, you're essentially now on paper you have a value of a million dollars. Because exactly. again, a Hundred thousand shares, um, but you have to pay the taxes on that. Despite the fact that we're not necessarily talking about a publicly traded stock or something like that, so these aren't the most
2: share tax implications and things like that. Exactly right. Yeah, and in that case, you'd be—it's called the, the kind of bargain element—is what what the the, the lawyers call it—that uh, difference between a million and a hundred thousand, and so. That 900000 would be basically treated, again, depending on the exact kind of options you have, um, as income. And so, you, you know, if you're paying, uh, when you exercise, right, so you could be paying up to, again, a couple hundred thousand, depending on your exact situation. So,
1: the reason we're talking about this now is because for the last decade, at least, it, not for every company, but in general, for tech workers, um, uh, what, what's the what's the crypto phrase, Chris? Um, Line goes up or whatever
0: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah yeah, always goes up right exactly
1: yeah, so it's sort of been that way, but now we're in a situation where depending well, on down. well, and depending on when you got hired, because think about it, you know um, if you were like employee number five, um, even if your company does a down round, you still you're, you're, you could still exercise your options and and they'd be above water, but if you got hired right at that last you know, series C raise and now they're going to raise a D as a down round. Your, your options are completely underwater. And so this is sort of what your piece talks about. You, you give like um, several different scenarios and how, um, in what cases, what, what options people have in, in which cases they should maybe exercise the options or maybe not. And one of the key things about the the piece, and then I'm, I'm, I'm sort of teeing you up to like, give us some scenarios is in essence, you say that you know there's an opportunity cost here, and the opportunity cost is time. You, you know your life and the effort, the amount of productive yeah. years that you have, and things like that. So, you know, you, if you're working for a startup and all of a sudden your options are underwater, maybe you should jump ship. Maybe you could go to another company that that maybe um, isn't as far underwater, et cetera, et cetera. So, walk me through some of these sort of things that um, workers might need to be considering right now.
2: Totally, yeah. So let's walk through this kind of first situation just to kind of set the stage. So w- one of the things that could have happened is you joined a company maybe a couple years ago. They've raised a couple rounds, and so your, your, the value of your options increased. Um, and now they're just kind of coming down in a down round, right? So your options, like you said, are still positive, but they're you know less valuable than they were, call it, a year ago. Um, so there's a couple key things you can kind of think about in that situation. So like one of them would be actually now might be sort of a uniquely great time to exercise your options. Uh, and the reason is again, the, the, you know, if you believe in the long term prospects of the business, then the share price is just going to continue to increase and increase. And if you owe taxes, when you exercise, right. When you, when you actually buy your options, then this would be the lowest spread, the lowest amount of taxes that you'll pay. Right. So again, this is not a guarantee, but that's one thing is that now because the share price is lower uh, and you'll pay less taxes, it could be an interesting time to purchase your options. Um, another thing that's kind of interesting about that scenario that another, uh, that many, many people also don't realize is that if you uh, do leave your company, right, you were talking about opportunity cost of time. If you do leave your company, um, your options actually expire. So this, is again, is something that it depends on exactly the types of options. But the industry standard is that if you have options that are uh, vested, so you, you're, you're capable of exercising them, but you haven't exercised them. Uh, it's typically 90 days after you leave the company that they will essentially like disappear. They will be, uh, you know, back to the company. And so this is like a really tough situation again for people, right? Is like if you worked for this company for a couple of years, your share price has increased, but you haven't purchased your options. Now there's kind of this golden handcuff situation where you would have to pay again, depending on how many options, hundreds of thousands potentially of dollars, uh, you know, out of out of pocket. And, uh, you know, and if you don't do that, then your options will disappear. Uh, and then, yeah, and then finally, like, as I mentioned before, this is not, you know, startups are inherently, uh, you know, very risky and you can kind of dive into some of the numbers there where earlier stage, you know, a lot of people are aware that most startups die. But even, again, like one of the stats I pulled is even a Series D company. Yeah, um, I love that stat. Yeah, it's only about a 30% chance of getting to an exit. And, you know, and that's any kind of exit, that's not necessarily like a, Five billion dollar outcome that changes your life, right? So um, there's a there's so kind of you,
1: you know yeah. What you're saying is that you could be at a, at a at a unicorn, right? Um, and you feel like oh we've been going great guns, we're at the late stage or whatever, and so we're we're getting close to the finish line here. But you're saying that you even then you have a one in three chance of essentially you know the 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 payday coming good. Absolutely, exactly. So one of the things that you did say. That people should start to think about is whether or not you believe. If 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 you're if you're face, if you're in a situation like this where maybe your your company's facing a down round or maybe things are looking dicey, it's time to evaluate like your faith in that company because on the one hand, this could be a uniquely great time to exercise your options. Explain why that might be.
2: Yeah. So again, there's there's. Uh, you may, you know, if you're working at a startup, you probably, uh, you know, you're, you're around people. You, 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 know, you, you kind of have some of the information maybe about, about how the company's doing. So maybe you have a kind of a hunch. Maybe you're like either confident or hesitant, maybe is, is the two, you know, sides of this. And, and if you're confident about the prospects of the business, right? You believe in the founder, you believe in that you have product market fit, you have a, a real business model. Um, yeah, now might be actually, uh, again, counterintuitively, uh, a uniquely great time to exercise your options. And again, the reason is is because um, going back to the tax situation is you'll pay taxes on the difference between, again, the strike price and the current 409a, the fair market value. right? And so if you were issued your options at a current strike price, again, let's say going back to our simplified example of one dollar per share, and it went up to $10 dollars a share, and then now there's a down round and it's at $750 a share, right? Now that difference, instead of being the difference between one and ten of nine, it's the difference between one and seven and a half. So it's six and a half. So you'll actually be paying less taxes because that spread between the strike price and the current price is smaller. So, again, this is, uh, again, multi-dimensional, which is why this whole problem is not so easy. But that's one of the things there where you can actually pay less taxes because they reprice the company lower.
1: Re, re up to not take this as advice and talk to a professional, but hundred percent, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so give me the scenario where um, maybe I just walk away. Like maybe, maybe I walk away because I feel like there's a better opportunity out there, or maybe I walk away because it's like, I mean, am I going to really spend three, five years to fi- to figure out if this company is going to dig out of this hole? Um, so. Where when might I consider walking from these options? And 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 by the way, with the caveat being that it depends maybe on if I've exercised some exercise already or exercised not at all.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So if you're a little bit more hesitant about the company, uh, like first of all, I mean the equity is one piece of this, but uh, again, y- you should be valuing your time as much as anybody. And so if you're kind of like hesitant about the situation, maybe an interesting time to think about getting a good new job anyway. Uh, but specifically on the kind of options and equity piece, yeah, one of the things that, again, not many people realize is that your options will expire if you haven't exercised them. So, uh, you know, if you're hesitant about the company, not a big deal, right? If you, the numbers show out that most, you know, most startups don't work out. And if you don't think that this is one of the really exceptional ones, then you're not really missing out, right? Like that actually might be a good thing. You're going to save your cash. You can go put that into like public market investments or if you have angel investments or crypto or, you know, something else. Uh, and so that's what you can do with that. Um, and where was I going with this? Uh, yeah. And so, and then, and then you can, uh, there's also the time factor around all of this, right? So this is something that I kind of every company and every employee is thinking about right now is even in a down round, right? Like, uh, or, or, or even in a scenario, another scenario, which would be like your company doesn't raise a down round because they have two to three years of runway of cash. Like any of these situations, it's like, Are there more interesting opportunities where the equity isn't inflated? Or are there more interesting opportunities where you believe in the company and the founder and the people who you're working with? And maybe, should you again go look at kind of doing something like that instead?
1: It's it's almost identical to holding a stock that has gone down 70%. If you believe it's going to go back, up to you know its highs, great. But if it's going to take seven years to do that, you could have that money invested in something else that could be making money all this time.
2: Yeah, um, and just and, on that, yeah, yeah and, just, and just on that point, one another interesting kind of framework to have for your equity is to like think about this as an investor, right? And I think getting at your point is like. Um, This is all kind of a time-weighted return, right? So like, um, you know, sure, you could have invested in something and, and you know, if it doubles in value over 100 years versus doubles in value over one year, that's like a massively different return profile, right? So that's another thing you have to think about. I'd also say, particularly on your point around the public markets, I think you're correct in the time-based factor. Uh, But another kind of interesting nuance of the private markets is that they are illiquid. And so you can't, like, you know, exit a certain point or, like, Um, You know, there are some other considerations there. In addition to, again, most startups, even even quote unquote mature startups, uh, end up failing.
1: Um, Can you tell me? Let's let's switch to the other scenario now. Let's say I'm a I'm a employee at Amazon, right? Um, And so, and I and I got hired uh, a year ago. You know, and 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 the stock is down thirty percent since then. I mean, we're seeing lots of big public tech companies you know, raise salaries, increase bonuses, even, you know, reprice options and things like that. But if I'm, if I'm at a big publicly traded company, um, what should I be considering and thinking about if my options are, are in trouble because the stock has been down, uh, a
2: lot? Yeah. So I'm a little bit less familiar around this kind of situation. So I'll, put that as a caveat. Um, sure, but, I, but I think it's a lot of similar kind of points, right? Um, you know, maybe there's some other considerations because like one, uh, typically people at uh, larger companies have higher cash salaries. So they have a little bit more of a cushion, perhaps more liquidity to like think about these sorts of things. Um, but there's also kind of the situation of, uh, you know, maybe thinking more about diversification in this kind of market, right? Um, and, uh, and, and and uh, you know, if, if you're highly concentrated in something like a big tech company and you have, um, you know, and it's gone down a lot, obviously, uh, hopefully your, your portfolio is, is um, you know, kind of <laughs> around a number of different uh, assets and so that you can kind of... Uh, um, uh, leverage that blow, but another thing that uh, kind of generally, uh, again, not not investment advice, but just something that that I kind of think about is that um, you know it's it's the data actually points out that uh, timing the market almost never works out. So one of the things you can again you can always think about is like yeah the, the you know a lot of these stocks have, have gone down quite a bit and there may be a buying opportunity, um, but generally uh, again. I, for sure, not investment advice, but generally, uh, you know, something more like dollar cost averaging, sticking to a long-term view, uh, with kind of this, you know, the, the money you've set aside for investing for capital raising, and and again, just not maybe not worrying about kind of the short-term quite as much is is generally what what I uh, what I talk to people about. Uh,
1: one more time, not investment, not financial advice, but let's let's end with this one. I'm going to jump back to I'm working at a private startup. Um, you you do point out that. One thing that is possible is to ask for option repricing or like a refresh in the option program or something like that um, what what do you, what's your advice in terms of approaching your boss and floating that boat?
2: Yeah, so this is something we're seeing all over from founders from employees from just kind of everybody is like how do we take care of our employees or how, how do employees make sure that they you know, you know, if you're underwater, all these kinds of things, or it's like a really scary situation. So, um, again, generally what I would say is like, uh, similar to many negotiations, if you can prove kind of your value, then sometimes you can, um, you know, you know, have, have a better outcome. So one of the things, for example, you can do is say like over the past, you know, six months or whatever the time period is, here are the accomplishments that I've particularly, um, you know, helped helped, uh, push forward and these are the business outcomes they have. Uh, And and if you kind of present this, I think, in a particularly um, thoughtful way to kind of whoever is your manager or or the CEO or whatever, um, you know, you can be like, I really want to stay at this company and I really believe in the the potential Mm -hmm. of it, uh, but I just think that, uh, you know, kind of uh, repricing the options so they're underwater or having a refresh, um, you know, can be something that would be really motivating to me. Uh, And and again, typically, um, you know, you know, a lot of times uh, companies are, are, you know, receptive to this if in certain situations, uh, especially because uh, again, think about it from their perspective. If all of your, uh, you know, in terms of like a like a refresh, for example, if all of your options were already vested and you exercised all of them and owned all of them, you certainly have some incentive to stay around, but. The, the company would actually like a percentage of that to be um, you know, in the future and, and to have this, again, kind of incentive for you to, to stick around longer. So there's also ways that, um, you know, it's not, you know, obviously you would be receiving more value in a repricing or a refresher, but there's also good cases for the company to do it too. So it's not completely um, sort of this one-way uh, ask.
1: Uh, he did get uh, in trouble one, for one, this. Sorry, oh, yeah, one sorry, one quick, go
0: ahead. Just yep. practical question about that. You said that you could ask the company, but can you be a little more specific about who in the company you might ask about that repricing option?
2: Yeah. And I, um, I'm actually not going to say too much about that just because I am not kind of an expert on this particular situation. Totally. Uh, but generally, I, I, but, uh, and I, yeah, yeah, and I would say generally that this would be something I would assume you ask uh, anybody you would talk about a pro- about a promotion or compensation question. So typically that is either your manager or sometimes it's handled by like the general counsel, head of people, someone like that. Got it.
1: Okay. The the snarky thing I was going to say is yeah. you're in in good company if you ask to reprice your your options because Steve Jobs did that he got in trouble for it uh, Apple got in trouble for it so uh, we'll just leave it was, that there worked out <laughs> though yeah yeah. Yeah, in terms of- <laughs> um, yeah so by the way uh, uh, thank you so much um, for for telling us all about that but uh, I discovered today by um, you know preparing to talk to you that. Um, uh, Compound has these sort of manuals. They call them manuals. Like if you're an early employee, if you're an employee approaching a liquidity event, an early stage founder, just joined a unicorn. Um, there's really interesting data and, and like resources here. It's at manual.withcompound.com. Yes. Um, so uh, check that out. But Adam, is there anything else you want us to know about Compound or, or uh, you want to plug yourself personally? Whatever.
2: Yeah, no. I think going to the manual manual dot com is a great resource. Uh, we've gotten a lot of good feedback on that. It's um, again, like you said, uh, like you said, uh, good educational content around these topics. Um, By the way, who I will designed say-
0: this. Like, it's such a well-designed resource. Like, once I, I found it a couple months ago, I was like, oh my god, this is gorgeous.
2: I am completely not. Our design team is is top notch. I'm, I'm constantly impressed by them. Uh, but but yeah, and if you so, so head over to the manual. I think that's a great kind of early introduction. And uh, and also spend the time just to like think about this and, and kind of get it right for yourself because it'll be such an impl- important and. And kind of um, you know high value use of your time. Uh, additionally, we also have uh, software tools to help you manage your uh, employee equity, model out different scenarios, kind of similar to what I did in the article. Um, and you can uh, you can sign up for that at withcompound.com. Uh, we currently have a wait list, and we're kind of being really intentional about making sure everybody has a good experience and and kind of you know letting people off that intentionally, but uh, that would be another thing that I think uh, I've also had some you know behind-the-scenes peeks into that, and it's a very exciting tool that we're, we're really excited to show people, too. So, uh, manual.withcompound.com and then withcompound.com. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thanks for sharing all that with us. Uh, hopefully it helps people uh, or it gets people thinking gets people thinking that's right yeah
0: i mean i just want to like jump in like i mean i think this is so useful from a resource perspective these are all questions that i didn't even know how to formulate uh when i was going through my own startup journey and career um i <laughs> sort of <laughs> embarrassingly embarrassingly uh, once was an advisor to visco uh the the camera photo sharing app and they'd given me some um like a, an equity grant very very early on and uh, i totally spaced it on like the 409 valuation and like locking in the price and like all this other stuff and And I have no idea like how much it's worth or whatever, but it's one of those things where had I known that this was even something like a set of considerations to make, it would have definitely, you know, made a big difference in probably at least to some degree, my economic security at this point. So. You know, for anybody who is not thinking about these things or just like whatever, just knowing that there are these choices and options available to you. And especially, as you said, like not freaking out right now, given the sort of macro market conditions and thinking about your long term goals and plans and then thinking about how these different scenarios, Adam, that you've outlined can align with them. I think it's just so useful and valuable. And I'm really, really stoked that you put this resource out there.
2: Perfect. Yeah, thanks guys. Completely agree. And that's and that's another thing we uh often find is that people actually don't think about these things until they've had that situation where it's like, Oh shoot, like I should have done something else. And so we're really trying to change that and, and kinda get the word out through some of these resources. But um yeah, we appreciate you guys having me on.
1: And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, Adam. Um, You're welcome, of course, to to stick around. Um, But now we're going to talk about something completely different. Um, And actually, let me change the title of the space here. Um, We're going to actually... First, I think we'll do a little intro, um, and then we're going to bring up um, a new friend of the show. Uh, His name is John Knack, um, who actually works at Adobe um, and has worked um, on Google Image Tools and things like this in the past. Uh, He was a Photoshop PM. I'll actually have him do a little bit of an introduction himself. But before we get there, Brian, do you want to just like kind of give us your interest in this? Because this this is something that has been coming up lately um, in a number of different I guess context categories. Casey Newton was writing about it. Um, And it just, it feels like it's kind of exploded a bit, but you seem to be particularly interested in this.
1: Just because it's been a while since sort of technology has wowed me. And I think that's what everyone's reaction has been where it's like, Oh, you can do this. Do you know what I mean? And and, um, this is, this is maybe related or a poor analogy, but I remember early on in the smartphone days, I asked. I took. I took my wife to Paris to ask her to marry me, and that was like the first time that you could go with a smartphone and point it at, um, you know, signs and stuff in French and have it on screen translate it for you. And I was like, oh my god, um, that's
0: amazing. I remember that a couple years ago, and now it's like built in and you take it for granted. Right, right.
1: You don't even. Yeah, you don't need an internet connection. I remember download. I had to download like. Uh, a module so that it could do French or Italian or whatever. Anyway,
0: uh, yep, I so remember that too. Mm-hmm.
1: It is it is sort of like that in the sense that if if you're not familiar, essentially Dolly is this program where you can literally say, "I want to see a picture of." A Victorian child wearing a VR headset—I think—is one that Casey Newton did. Yeah, this
0: is like not even a joke. It's like literally that phrase was the seed. And phrase. it'll,
1: or, or you can say, and I want it in the style of, um, uh, I, I don't know, uh, the Gauguin Doomsbury cartoon, or, yeah, yeah, or whatever,
0: or, or Dolly yeah. himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, 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 or, yeah, right, exactly. And 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 it'll give you like ten different options, and they're all good. See, that's the first of all. It's impressive to me that this is possible. But they're good. Like, they're not...
0: They're really believable. They're not, I mean, I will say, yeah. so, they're like, the, we should probably talk a little bit about what this technique is and what this technology is. You know, there's a lot of deep learning, um, AI and machine learning techniques that are going on that are kind of these enormous kind of branching trees with, with different types of logic that run yeah, on... Yeah,
1: that's what I want to find out about, yeah.
0: Like, current processors, you know, is able to happen so fast... And they're able to take influences from all these different sort of parts of the tree and then recombine them together into something that is passing as an image, you know, based on all the training that they've gone through. And I think what's what's so incredible about it is that it's, it really is this kind of uncanny valley moving into the canny valley where you look at it and you're like, that could actually pass for, you know, insert X here. And in, in fact, uh, I've been talking, uh, well, I guess, following um this, this guy, Ken, uh, is, is actually where I found John. Um, Ken works at Humane. He previously worked at Apple. And um, he's been doing a bunch of, I guess, just experiments with Dolly, And some of them relate to kind of taking uh, Da Vinci-style you know, images and then applying them to things, of course, that that da Vinci would never have been able to design or draw, for example, you know, UFOs or, you know, televisions. And so what I find so fascinating about this, because it's so believable and it's in this like old style is that you can imagine people, you know, unaware that this technology exists suddenly discover these things on some Reddit forum and actually believe that they're real. And somehow that's, you know, spirals up into some new, I mean, like if you think about the, the effectiveness of um, QAnon now combined with Dolly, like it's going to be just mind melting and mind blowing and etc. Anyways, I, I won't I won't talk anymore. John, do you want to come up and say hello, introduce yourself, and uh, kind of tell us a little bit more about your experience and background, maybe in computer graphics, and then how you came to Dolly?
3: Uh, yeah, thanks thanks for having me. Um, wow, where to start? So my family is actively teasing me now because I am so like. Dolly pilled. It's crazy. Uh, (laughs)
0: Reading your blog, I'm going to pin out a link to your blog. It's been amazing to see all the stuff that you've been finding, but keep going.
3: Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, Gosh, so yeah, kind of speedrun for me. Um, I was a kid, you know, using Apple II computers. And then um, as I was tweeting in response to Ken today, um, I remember, you know, being at my friend's birthday party. I I was uh, nine years old, I think, when the Mac arrived. And one of the big Uh, treats in my career has been uh, getting to meet Bill Atkinson, who is the creator of MacPaint and telling him just, you know, what a sort of salient moment in, in my life that was. I mean, I literally, it was like it was yesterday because I had been the kind of kid who'd love to draw. I remember, you know, being three years old and figuring out how to draw a car on a cocktail napkin at the Algonquin Hotel, you know. And so this moment where I could draw with a computer in the way I could draw on paper, yet I could produce things that were totally impossible on paper was so revelatory. I remember I I drew a jail just because I wanted to use the flood fill with a brick pattern, you know, and it was just, Uh it's so trivial now, but it's the kind of thing that was this step change in in what you could do expressively. And, you know, throughout the eighties, I begged my parents for a Mac and, you know, they were super expensive. And so it wasn't until college, uh, you know, some years later, I, uh, um, and I ended up um, joining a, a startup in the late '90s. You know, doing like design and animation. And every time Adobe uh, folks or Macromedia, whoever would come by, I was very nice, but I was always very, very like, uh, I know you're good at building them, but but like, why does Flash work this way, or why does Photoshop work this way? So I ended up getting into the whole PM Jam really just to try to make my friends happy and try to make the tools I wanted to use, they wanted to use. And, um, you know, I won't belabor all this, but basically spent 14 years at Adobe. I spent 10 of those on Photoshop, got to work on, you know, content Aware fill, things like that, which were these other wait. sort of... Yeah,
0: Like, I think that's a very important thing um, to just call out because content aware fill, when I saw it, you know, and, and I'm, I'm someone who is, you know, like a naive kind of Photoshop user. I mean, it was, it was like a game changer, right? Because oh, yeah. so much yeah. of... A a photographer's journey in, you know, editing photos and so on is kind of using like the, um, if not the blend tool, the the patch tool and kind of copying Mm -hmm. over, you know, background stuff and, you know, trying to replace weird people who showed up in your photo in the background or something Mm -hmm. and trying to make it Mm -hmm. look believable. And here Photoshop was just, as you said, sort of like, it was like that powerful moment where not just like, you know, like you said, with Mac paint, like creating a rectangle then wanting to like fill it in with like the fill tool, just cause it's like so cool. Right. But now you're That's doing right. that with like reality you're like filling a box with reality based on the things yeah. that are around it in a believable way. And I think that was one of the first moments for me when I was like, Oh wow, this is like a total game changer. Like I, I know I don't, I don't really want to get to like Dolly, but I'm just, I'm curious, given that you were at Adobe, if you can unpack a little bit of that journey from where it was kind of maybe more of like a manual artistry kind of sense where, the photographers or the editors were doing this work kind of themselves. And there was like an art to it versus realizing that the software could actually kind of become a creative collaborator, if not kind of execute some of these things and what that experience or conversation was like within Adobe. I mean, was there resistance or was it kind of like, let's, yeah, let's do this. Let's make it happen.
3: Yeah, gosh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, Kevin Connor was my boss on Photoshop for many years and he used to talk about how Explain tools were sort of, okay. So, so he was a VP of imaging and uh, he, he would uh, sometimes point out that there was this progression from, you know, very, very simple tools. Like in principle, you could kind of do anything in Photoshop 1.0, right? Like you literally could take, you know, a one pixel uh, brush tool and you could make stuff, right? So it's all possible, but obviously impractical. And uh, you know, when I first joined Photoshop, this was God, 2002, they had just introduced the Healing Rush and the Patch Tool, which were mind-blowing, you know, as, as you may remember back then. Yep. Um, yep. And Kevin's point was that you know, the Clone Stamp Tool had been around for many years by that point, and it would just sort of naively uh, let you sample one area, copy it to a different area, and it's still incredibly powerful. It's a fantastic tool but it's very naive. It just kind of, you know, with the exception of maybe a blending mode change or opacity, it just kind of dumps stuff from from point to point. And he brought up that, you know, the healing brush is really that tool. It's just more opinionated and specialized for certain kinds of things like retouching or object removal. And, you know, I think of that a lot because I see it happen again and again where, you know, content or fill, um, was, you know, much more sophisticated and could look at different patches and synthesize new textures. And now when we jump ahead to something like Dali, I've been calling it content or fill cubed. You know, I don't know what the power is, but it's like, it's, it's now hallucinating things from whole cloth. In fact, I, I just retweeted a little experiment I did with a picture of Russell Brown. Uh, people who know Adobe may remember Russell, uh, Basically, Atari laid him off in the early 80s. He didn't know what he was going to do. And he's like, well, what's this like a uh, printer startup? I don't know. Uh, Adobe, I guess? And so he ended up going there. And he ended up being one of the four names on the Photoshop 1.0 splash screen. Amazingly, he's, he's still around. His son is now my designer, which freaks me out because time goes by. Um, but I, I mention it because I, I just took this headshot of Russell. Uh, I selected his face. And then I had Dully in-paint the rest That's with insane. a Viper. Light- it, it yeah. is, is off the chain, right? I just so, pinned so, the tweet,
0: oh, and yeah, it's it's amazing.
3: Okay, yeah. So, so, but back to your your question about the um, the genesis of of content or fill integration. It feels really similar to me in the sense that I had a great relationship with the Adobe Research team, and they in turn work with tons of academic folks. You know, much like the Google team does, and, and Meta, and everything. And some of the most fun I ever had would be to go to offsites, and they would. Um, you know, show, hey, I've got this thing and it kind of cooking, like, what do you think? Like, there might be something there, They might not be, and I would bring perspective from what I've been, you know, trying myself and talk to the customers. Um, and at one point, there was this paper called Patch Match, and it it's really, it's worth Googling, it's still a very interesting uh, paper from, I think, 2009, and it kind of promised the sun and the moon. It was like, you could select this, you know, gazebo in a, a you know, yard and move it, and then yeah you know, clone it or switch it or you could like reconfigure a building and i looked and i thought wow that it's incredible if it works i have no idea if it does it seems a little ambitious but what if we just took one little piece of that puzzle like what if we just took the part where for some reason there's not a hole in the yard or the sky and you know we got to work and a couple of the engineers a, a guy dan goldman who's now at google uh evan kiver ballundry he's at apple it's, it's a very small world right uh they took the patch match paper and started pranking on it. And we thought, okay, here's here's one piece of the puzzle. It was, you know, incredibly slow relative to what we shipped. It was, you know, God, probably 10 times, 20 times slower. And they really did all the hard work to make the research code become practical. And then once we had that, it was like, okay, the natural touch points would be uh, you know, you could just hit delete and you could do a fill, or you could make this a method within healing, for example. And and the reason I'm mentioning it in the context of DALI is I think sometimes. You look at this whole huge. Think well, like it could synthesize stuff. It could, you know, it could do a million things. I think one of the most exciting parts is if we can kind of break down the constituent pieces, whether it's like auto-generation of layouts or uh, style transfer or you know um, object removal. I, I think what we'll see is is these general methods uh, of of this you know diffusion-based text-driven uh, synthesis will end up. Rippling out and and touching lots and lots of tools in maybe unexpected ways maybe in really narrow applications it's not to say that the you know the big top level thing like you like people are seeing from delhi uh won't be hugely popular i think it will as long as there's enough gpus on the planet to to run it which there aren't mm-hmm, apparently right. <laughs> rel- relative <laughs> yes. to the de- the demand i mean i think that that's the the weird part is like there's you know i think an enormous backlog of people who would like to have access it's just it, it's physically constrained right now by by the amount of compute required and, um, oh, and in that.
1: I almost did a story today about how uh, GPU prices might suddenly crash because all of a sudden uh, Ethereum is moving to proof of uh, stake. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, right. neither here nor there. Con- continue your story.
3: Well, no, no. I think it's it's funny. Uh, you know, I listened to a, a podcast where, um, gosh, it's Ben McKenzie. Is that his name? The guy who was on the the show, the OC. He's now written a book about crypto. And and talked about walking into some you know hangar sized data center in Texas where all these machines are just whirring all day you know doing crypto mining and I was thinking gosh uh, maybe if you know that uh, that crays, uh craters a little bit who knows maybe the capacity will free up to let people do more artwork creation which in my view has more intrinsic value to it um, but who knows and. Yeah, it, it, the other funny thing I discovered is um, the PM for uh, Dali is named uh, Joanne, and we got in touch, and she said, "Oh, you're you're my uh, brand mentor," and I was like, "What?" It's yeah, I'm, wow. I'm your brand mentee, uh, <laughs> right? Because she was, I know, right? So she was at Google, I was at Google. We have a friend in common in between, and I didn't know that she, you know I should turn into dust or walk into the ocean, but I, I told her, you know, I've been doing this at some combo of Adobe and Google for twenty two years. And and I honestly my wife and I are, you know, same same age, and we both kind of looking at our career like, well, do we want to do this forever? Do we want to go teach high school? Do we want to open a coffee shop? And then, you know, Dali decloaked and, and right afterwards, uh, Google decloaked theirs, which is called Imagine. There's also mid-journey, there's disco diffusion. Like suddenly it's, you know, this zero to N uh production of these models. And I was I was saying to Joanne and, and others, like it has flipped the script for me where I'm like, thank God I'm only 46 in quotes, right? Whereas previously I'd been like, well, maybe I've come and seen and done everything I can do. You know, I I went to Google with this stated mission of teaching Google Photoshop, meaning like, how can I move from serving the sort of uh, 1% of people who know and love tools like Photoshop and they've got, you know, the the energy and ambition and need to go and master those, which was, it's a super fun market to serve. and, And that's where I come from. But at Google, it's like, hey, could you reach 10 times more people, 20 times more did people? Did you work
0: on Snapseed or Google Photos?
3: Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I did. I did. Um, there, there, are, there are stories to be told. Um, well, sorry, yeah, I sorry. Dis-
0: disclosure. I, I worked on Google+. Plus, and so I was also uh, yes. with the Photos okay. team. And so I'm very aware right. of you know, some of the aspects of... Google photos and just the, I mean, the crawl and in the index and the inventory of content, you know, that was publicly available <sighs> right, to the service right. that could be used for training models. So that's why I ask. Oh,
3: uh, no, no, that it's a great point. And, um, sort of my origin story was, um, you know, after Instagram got purchased in 2012, uh, my, I wasn't at Google, but my understanding is, uh, who was running thing, uh, his conclusion though was, well, Google needs to own the means of production when it comes to photography. And started getting really serious, it seemed. They bought up um, Nick Software, which was a you know 120 people yep. In, yep. in Germany. I, I knew them super well because they were Photoshop developers. Like, super nice guys, did great quality work. And I'd always wanted to buy them at Adobe. I just, you know, I was afraid Apple would get them and put into Aperture, You know, which, thank goodness for us, they didn't. Yep. Um, but then I would joke, because I was like, oh my God, at least Apple would have charged money for it. Now Google's going to take it and give it away, right? They <laughs> <I> did. <laughs> they did, and, and so... Um, the next year, I, I pinged uh, my friend, Josh Haftel, who was there. He had come in with the acquisition and said,
0: um, oh, "Right, I, I you know, worked with Josh. Mm-hmm.
3: Yep, totally. Okay. Yep. yep. Memorable dude, you know. Yep. Uh, and, you know, just, yeah, colorful, literally colorful guy coming back from Burning Man. Um, and he was like, oh, he, he's like, bro, I'm I'm on a plane with Aung Sang Suu Kyi. I'm piecing out to Burma. You know, I'm going to go walk the earth after, you know, he's investing at Google. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Right. My, my journey was that I wanted to uh, take these tools I really loved, like Snapseed, uh, put them at the disposal of the sort of Google automation stack, and then make a world where people like me, who, who really care about, you know, crafting particular looks, uh, kind of like Visco, right? Uh, you know, that, that, you know, Lightroom creators. It's yep. funny, Visco came out of, uh, you know, like three guys taking a little utility we made for Lightroom. And creating some really great looks and then selling them as like Tri-X and Kodak and, you know, Delvia. Anyway, uh, so I wanted to say, hey, if, if we have the tool that a small but passionate subset of people, small being tens of millions, you know, but small by Google standards, um, would want right, to use, you could
0: bring that to really everybody, right? It,
3: it, exactly. And, and do it in the way where, for example, my wife and son are on a road trip right now. They're taking photos. Um, if, if it will always oh, okay.
0: Okay, but wait. So, because because like I, I'm so excited to like hear kind of about the the connection into Dolly, right? So yes, on the yes, one yes, hand, sorry. my sense, yeah. totally fine, is is like wanting to deliver these tools to the masses. And I there think, you go. Uh, the what option. Brian was saying right. was that you know now we may have some extra uh, GPUs available because crypto is you know right. in the shitter, right. and and now right. if we could actually make a tool like Dolly uh, and and it's you know sort of brethren available to a much broader audience. I think the thing that I'm curious about your, your perspective to bring it into Dolly, you know, is so so one, of course we can talk about the mechanics of how it works, which I think it's, it is one of those cases where, you know, anything that is, what is it like, I don't know the, the whole magic quote, like it's indistinguishable for for magic or something like in this case, you see these images and you literally like type in a a, a Mm -hmm. prompt and the computer responds with, here's what I think this should look like based on looking at billions and billions of images. And people seem to associate these words right. with this look and feel of a thing. And so when I put those things together, this is the output mm-hmm. that you get. Um, right. When it comes right. to creativity, I guess like what would be kind of interesting to hear from you is the way in which you've seen creativity change as a result of like, like for example, you know, another, another sort of thing that I'm trying to tee up for you is if I think about introducing the idea for the hashtag in 2007, and then seeing the various ways mm-hmm. in which people interpreted and adopted that idea over time and used it for both mm-hmm. good and not so good output. From your perspective, mm-hmm. you know, from from Adobe, from Google, from Content Aware Phil, with Dali, where do you see this kind of going in terms of adoption and usage and application?
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. That. Thank you. Thanks for the redirect. I. Yeah. Uh, I, I get. I, I get. It. We'll go ahead. And with it, like, what does this do place. for
0: creativity? Right? Because I think there's this yeah, question yeah, yeah. of replacement of of human right. talent and, and ingenuity. Right. And on the other hand, complementariness, which is kind of like the content aware fill thing.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I, I I forget. Maybe you've seen this article from some years ago. Somebody wrote a post called "shit work," and it was like basically, mm. don't give people shit work. Right? Yeah. Like a lot of. Um, digital creativity has been that class of stuff. You know, part of why I joined Adobe was like to get a, a 20 layer PSD into flash was 168 steps. And I know that because I counted because I used to do that nights and weekends, <laughs> right? It was just like a, a, a bizarre misallocation of, of time and talent. And my, and coming to Adobe, I'm like, great, we'll make it two steps and three if you want layers, right? Bang, you're done. And it was like, Oh great. So, so now much like the GPUs, my brain is freed up to do something interesting. Um, and, and really, I think the promise of Dali-type tools is that I think it's obviously disconcerting, and I don't want to be Pollyanna here. I do think, you know, there there is some class of work for which people are paid now, which will go away, and it doesn't matter if we like it or not. It's just what'll happen. I think the analogy that a lot of creators have been making is to photography in the 19th century, where you know, similarly, there was a huge. Mm. Rebuke and revulsion from traditional artists. They're like, "How dare you?" You know, I've, I've spent my life with what was then the cutting-edge technology, oil paint, uh, making that, um, you know, reproduce reality as as closely as a human could. And suddenly, more or less, anybody can reproduce reality in that same way. And I think what it freed up was once you don't have to be a mimic in that manner. You can do other things. You can go and become an impressionist or a cubist or, this is, you know, people. Uh,
1: this is so much what I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so very much. The, the, the photography analogy is, is beautiful in the sense that, you know, you spend, you're an artist in the, in the 19th century, 18th century, and you spend your whole life essentially trying to replicate reality, right? Right. Right. Now, there's also, you know, aesthetics, personal tastes, and things like that, and talent that goes into it, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, am I right in thinking that that essentially the way the AI works in this, it is still pattern matching?
3: Yeah, yeah. So, so here is the interesting thing for me. Um, you know, I came I came back to Adobe to work on what we were calling and still are calling AI first creative tools, and it's like, well, what does that mean? It's Well, nobody knows what it means, but that's what's fun to, to figure it out. And uh, OpenAI, which makes Dolly. Uh, has this technology called CLIP, which, you know, my layman's understanding is it's basically what you just said, it's this mass association between visual and textual descriptions, right? So it's trained on hundreds of millions of image caption pairs. And that's how it learns, you know, what what is a dog, what is a Renaissance painting, what is a Renaissance painting of a dog, that kind of thing. And my team uh, at Adobe made a paper called Style CLIP. So basically they took Clip, the language model, and paired it with StyleGAN, which is a generative adversarial network from NVIDIA, to make StyleClip. So the upshot of this is you can use uh, text to edit a face. First, you can create a face, but you can also edit a face. And so it's amazing and uncanny. I can type in, an old Irish woman with a pageboy haircut, and like my mom and her sisters pop out. And it's like, oh my <laughs> god, this is very weird. Now, what you instantly discover, of course, like people are doing with Dali Mini, which is not at all Dali, but it's, it's like a, an open-source version you know, that, that folks can access, is your inner beavis comes out instantly. It's like this id magnet. And you start wanting to type in inappropriate, problematic stuff. And guess what? It can do it because it has seen the internet. And so... A lot of, I mean, here's an example is like beautiful, right? Like what if you type in the word beautiful or there's a, a beauty slider? Well, naively, if you don't correct for the biases in the data set, it will make people younger, whiter, and more female because that is what it has mm-hmm. learned. Yes, that's from. Bias. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's looked at the corpus of advertising imagery across the globe, and, and those are the trends that are present. Uh, similarly, if you make somebody older, they also look more male because there's a a disproportionate number of older men and younger women in the data set. So it kind of conflates these terms. And this gets to a lot of the the issues people raise with something like Dali, where if you type in CEO, overwhelmingly you get white and Asian men. Uh, if you type in nurse or healthcare worker, you overwhelmingly get women and women of color. And it, it this is a much longer, interesting debate, we have a different time, but like what what should be produced, you know, what what do we as like ethical creators want to see how much should our opinion influence you know what the machine does and so this is the stuff i've been wrestling with my whole time back at adobe i mean it's it's brilliant tech but it's also you know super risky and the last thing any of us want to do is is make something you know used to either create fake news or something hurtful or, or, or problematic so it's
1: <laughs> did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement you can still have an ira Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from other retirement accounts with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at robinhood.com slash boost. Subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk, including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to specific terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S customers in good standing. That's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Yeah. Again, you know, uh, if if it is patterns, it's it depends on what patterns it's trained on and and what patterns mm-hmm. it, it executes mm-hmm. on. But so th- th- this was the question I was trying to lead towards is what it's been mm-hmm. making me think about is to what degree and maybe none of us here are qualified to even opine on this. Um, that's what creativity is is mm-hmm. like patterns and and what your talent is. You know, uh, if you look at different cartoon artists, you can tell. You know a Bill Waterson sketch drawing mm-hmm. from a, a who's the guy that did you know Garfield or Peanuts or whatever sure. you know sure. what I mean because those are patterns that you learned in the same way that mm-hmm. you know um Hemingway established a pattern for his words and use of words and things like that. It's been making me think like I know that what when you say, okay, I want you to do a a a, a cityscape. Of um, the metaverse, but in the style of um, you know Van Gogh, it is mm-hmm. doing those patterns. But to what degree is mm-hmm. human creativity the evolved patterns that are ingrained in our brains? And 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 mm-hmm. also maybe I'm getting way too. We're smoking weed in the dorm room here, but like <laughs> that's sort of what I'm thinking
0: about.
1: Uh, not yet, no. <laughs> Man, it's early in the day. Remember, <laughs> okay. right? But uh, any, any thoughts on that in terms of Are we revealing things about how creativity works and how, maybe not talent works, but um, it is sort of pattern matching that then is a learned sort of expressive behavior?
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think of that famous quote from our story about Picasso where, you know, a woman asked him, hey, will you draw me a picture of a bowl or something? And he thinks for a second, he, you know, does this flourish with his hand, he gives her this drawing. And says, you know, that'll be $10,000. And she's aghast and says, you know, how dare you that it only took you a moment. He said, no, ma'am, it, it took my whole life, right? Like he, he had spent his life.
0: Like, have you thought of all the a- GPUs I've had to run to get to this point?
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, but it's like the, the GPU, I mean, machine learning is trying to approximate what humans do, but, but to do it at the, a superhuman scale.
2: Wait,
0: wait. Okay. I want to ask you something about that. Like, cause one of the things that I've been noticing is about human perception. And Mm -hmm. when I notice or take a look at like these, actually the the Dolly ones tend to be quite realistic in the way that they are portrayed, but the, Mm -hmm. um, the hugging face kind of Dolly light, um, or mini Mm -hmm. approach probably is trained on fewer images. And so Mm -hmm. the perception that it produces is much less kind of accurate and it's more impressionistic. So it kind of takes Mm -hmm. shortcuts, Mm -hmm. which I presume Mm -hmm. are based on human perception. So my question kind of is, Like the thing that that I find so interesting, right. And we recently had this, there was a Google researcher, I guess, that, you know, was kind of believing that the AI that they'd created is is now somehow sentient or something Mm -hmm. like we start to have these, it's not just that we're anthropomorphizing kind of artistry or creativity in the AI, but that ultimately Mm -hmm. creativity is a form of curated probabilities being Mm -hmm. kind of uh, discarded or. Except that's that a isn't. better
1: way to put it. Yeah. Right.
0: Because like, yeah, when I was I, thinking about yeah. like the, the AI researcher at Google having this conversation, this like Eliza bot style conversation and getting realistic responses back, it's also mm-hmm. based on what our anticipated expectations of the response would be. Right. So mm-hmm. one of the things that Ken did recently was, was kind of Batman doing different things, Batman drinking coffee, mm-hmm. Batman going to McDonald's like in the Batmobile and Dolly, right. of course produces passable images that certainly at a glance, you believe that that's what you're seeing, but on closer inspection, mm-hmm. you know it's sort of like uh, I, I saw the everything all at once or happening all at once movie mm-hmm. or something. And mm-hmm. It's like it's like hot dog fingers, you know, like where right. you're, you're right. like that's not quite right. So right. my question is, is is about the artistry that's kind of achieved here, the believability of it, and the precision that humans mm-hmm. might either demand or expect you know, like based on like content aware, fill, right? Like that to me is a tool that only is so magical because when you do it compared to what you would have done on your own as, you know, putting human effort and talent and skill into it, you're like, actually, this is just about as good as I would do. Whereas Dolly is producing something that's a little bit different. So how does that change? Uh, Like, I'm just, I, I guess what I wonder is, do we start to let go of a certain set of human learned skills? because the computer can just do a good enough job that we no longer need to learn watercolor or oil painting or things along those lines. It's the There's
3: photography really analogy again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of artists and scientists about this and yeah, in a way it kind of depending on, you know, like importing a PSD file or, you know, could be something people tactically physically enjoy like doing watercolor right i don't a lot of people don't don't yeah. want that automated away, um but but it does it does give most of us superpowers i mean i i just, like i go to crossfit you know and i suck at it and it's like all right but you'll you'll grind away you know oh i, I put on 10 pounds or 20 pounds you know and like got a little better and suddenly if somebody shows up with a bunch of mech suits and it's like guess what everybody everybody can lift ten thousand pounds oh cool yeah. and now I, I incrementally, I'm still trying to add my, my ten or twenty, but it doesn't look so so impressive. I, I will say, you know, at, at Google, one of my ambitions was to make Google photos kind of be like Anna Wintour at Vogue. Like my mental model is she's hauling ass down the, the hallway, her assistant pops up and is, you know, man, we've got three covers for the March issue. Do you like this one, this one, or this one? She's like, This one's crap. I like the middle one, but lose the sunglasses, give me this card from number three. Right. And then off goes the lackey and they sit in InDesign Photoshop, whatever, and they make it happen. So so She still applied her creativity and you know taste and life experience, but didn't have to get mired in the execution. And tools like Dolly promise that a lot more of us can kind of function at that level. I think what's interesting is it is always lossy though. I think of like when the web evolved from using Flash to HTML. And to this day, there's things I could do in Flash 20 years ago I still can't do on the web. Uh, it'll probably always be that way. It's like Mac OS nine to Mac OS ten. You know, we lost lost some stuff. In, in aggregate, it was a gain. But I feel like because people don't have to do the you know mythical ten thousand hours of you know using chalk, using French curves, watercolor, whatever it might be, or watching all the movies, or you know doing the things that make you this perceptual being, which can then execute in in different media. Um, yeah, to some extent, it cheapens the coin, right? It's like you didn't do the work. You know, you're just in the mech suit, whether it's Hey, you lifted 10,000 and I lifted 10,000. Right, so so the 15. thing
0: that the way this gets interesting is if you end up inventing a new sport, let's say using those mech suits. Yeah. So right. what I'm curious, right. you know, again, if you're thinking about AI first tools at Adobe, um, you know, yeah. given the move to the metaverse, what, yeah. if you think about content aware fill for the metaverse, there are certain, mm. uh, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll describe this concept. And maybe, maybe I've been hanging out with Josh Haftel too many times, but. Uh, yeah. As as I've been told about uh, taking acid, there are moments yeah. in your journey where maybe you're starting to like go down a path that is not so positive. You know, that's the start of yeah. a, what might be a bad trip. I can imagine being yeah. in sort of a virtual world or metaverse kind of reality, um, <laughs> metaverse reality, a, a place in the metaverse where I'm starting to like not having a good time. Like it's kind of boring yeah. or it's just like uninteresting yeah. or something. And this content aware fill concept for the metaverse could be super interesting. Where I just sort of decide to. With a, with a few prompts, decide the type of direction that I want my experience to go in. And then okay. through tools like Dolly or other types of, you know, kind of, again, content aware in the most general sense, right? Like content could be music, content could be visuals, content okay. could be objects or game like, you know, activities or narratives, stories, whatever. You can almost invent kind of like directions for the metaverse to go in. And so then my question yeah. back to you is about being, you know, a tool builder and creator for people what like how do you maintain a sense of agency in that world where like you said you know it's not just that now you have like these mech you know armor and of course you can lift everything you don't need muscles anymore but you're actually Mm -hmm. engaged in the need to kind of overcome or to master something like what does mastery of dolly look like for an artist that's maybe starting out their career today
3: yeah fantastic question um it's interesting now that like there's this emergent um Genre of prompt exciting time because it's still only a very small number of people who can access it. Unfortunately, it's not by design; it's just, you know constrained. But um, I think prompt. Wait, is, are, are you so saying you're, by Klingman. prompt
1: you're saying like almost the Zen cones that people like poetry are suggesting that right, Dolly do? Right. Is that what you're saying?
3: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so exactly. So there's this you know subset of ml you know prompt engineering like how do you how do you figure out terms that produce desired results and you control that uh so so mario Klingman, uh quasimondo is his his handle he's been doing amazing you know uh uh, essentially
1: there there could be a shakespeare someday that has the most beautiful way of prompting (laughs) the ai to create the most beautiful image oh man that's right right
3: so yeah, so, so the point I'm just trying to drive is, is he, he's tried to come up with a term for what is that art. And then was asking GPT-3, which is from OpenAI, to, for suggestions for like, how would you characterize so the up. art of it is It's unbelievable. It's and great. then you talk to, to people working on these systems, they're like, oh yeah, it wrote poetry. And, you know, I, I mean, I really think everyone's continuously being surprised. I, I always think of it as that March on lunch thing where like, Every day I think I'm going to be ready for it. I'll kind of be over it. I get it. And it's like, no, it just runs through your face over and over and over and over. So, But, but anyway, the, the prompt thing, yeah, I, I think actually this, it'll be interesting to see if this is a long-term thing or whether this is just sort of a, a brief waypoint until we can make visual tools that then sit atop the prompt engineering where, sure, you can dial in language. And, and we've been doing that with the tools You know, my team's been building. But you can also just, you know, make a slider, make a preset. Uh, if it's a, a latent space, you can use things like grids, you know, to sort of traverse all of these possibilities.
0: I mean, you could start with Minecraft, right? Like, it doesn't even have to be like that complex, but it can be, again, suggestive. Right, right. It, can, it can persuade yeah. you of being in this immersive environment that's totally, right. I mean, your incantation, incantations, you know, can right. be like these prompts in Dolly. <laughs> yeah,
3: right? right, 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 exactly. And, um, but it's interesting because... You know, like you were saying about um, anticipation, it, it's that feeling of of not only is is maybe one's work less special because everybody can do something similar, maybe one's self is less special. Uh, there's this um, this thing called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, and there's a, a term they made up called vemo which basically it's the realization that the photograph you're taking is one that a million other people have taken, and people, you know, of course, can can now oh, yeah. scrape. Instagram. And they are like, Oh, look, it's the legs looking at the beach and the water on vacation shot. Right. Or it's the girlfriend pulling you along by your hand shot or whatever. And you're like, Oh my God, like I am in the matrix. I am, I am a dust particle. And, and I, I, I do, I think of the Louis CK bit where, you know, everything's amazing and no one's happy. Right. And he made this joke, you know, in the era of people just getting cell phones and it's like, it takes two seconds. And yet everybody's pissed because it's like, it's going to space. He said, give it a minute to get back from space. But I tell you, even four years ago, I went and visited my friend's uh, class at high, uh, high school class. He's a graphic design teacher. I was showing him the AR stuff we were building at Google. And to your point, if you've ever tried to do any of this stuff by hand, like if you've gone in uh, After Effects and tried to select somebody and rotoscope them, you'll just, you'll just want to...
0: Oh, yeah. It's terrible. Shit jobs. Oh. Mm-hmm. right
3: it, it's you know it's much better now since they have like ml driven tools but it, historically it complete shit work complete shit work right and you could be doing something massively more interesting if you weren't sitting there and hey i got my start doing that stuff as an intern and thank god i did but, but thank god it's gone but i tell you i showed all these you know 16 year old guys like, uh-huh. and like and I'm, so i was basically showing a real-time body segmentation which is now in you know snapchat and instagram and tiktok <laughs> right. and consumer tools and, and they're like yeah and we and so we had our own version it wasn't in those tools yet and and i was like i was fascinated and amazed Oh my God, guys, this is such a breakthrough. And these guys were graphic design students. So if anybody should appreciate how hard it was and how much better this is, it would be them. And yet they were like, mm-hmm, cool. And I'm like, no, 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 but wait, what did, did you not get it? And they're like, no, no, I, I get it. Yeah, it's cool. And, and that's, so that's like, always yeah, the yeah. story
1: I tell about. I was the last generation to learn how to splice physical film when right. I was in film school, right. you know, like yeah. which, which was it, which, which, which was a craft an art, but is meaningless. And, and, and right. so like every tool in the same way that we don't have abacuses, abacai anymore, we have mm-hmm. spreadsheets and things like that. Right. Like, like you're saying, this is getting rid of the shit work or whatever
3: the term. Right. Was. Right. Well, I have to, since you mentioned abacus, I'll, I'll tell you a funny example. So there's this artist named August camp. And before I had Dolly access, uh, I had posted this old onion article, which says uh dolphins develop opposable thumbs oh crap says humanity and in the story all the like dolphin technology starts washing up on shore and it's like today it's like um you know some crude you know coral axe and tomorrow it's like an abacus made of seashells and so august uh went off and typed in uh dolphin with opposable thumbs coral abacus and tweets it back at me. Right. And I'm just completely freaking out. Again, it's, so I'm like, I, I can't handle it. it just run right. to your face again and again. And and so it's like, and now, now I'm I'm so Dali pilled, I I'll see somebody say something online, and I'll respond to it by, you know, I take 60 seconds, I I swipe over to Dali and Chrome. I type in a prompt. I wait, you know, twenty seconds. I get back a bunch of results, and I will <laughs> is, then.
0: It's going to be the most annoying they, thing. I do this all the time with gifs or gifs, as mm-hmm, Brian likes to say. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know, sure. constantly, and I got to imagine right. it's so annoying. You could only imagine if I were able to turn, like, reproduce like gifs in retorts right. that are actually dolly right. powered. Oh my god, people it, would be so it, annoyed.
3: Exactly. And, well, uh, I mean, you know, this is why my family teases me because I just get hyper focused on things, and mm. but it does become. Again, it, it literally changes the way you see the world. Like, to me, one of the most charming aspects is uh, Dali. Uh, it's it's really good at reproducing, like, the layout and, and visual characteristics of something like type. Like, I typed in, you know, ZZ Top concert poster with, you know, 1930s Hot Rod, whatever. And it gave me fantastic, like, ten amazing-looking posters, all of which were complete gibberish. Um, but but that's super delightful. Like, my son took some of those terms, and I was, like, writing a short story for class, you know, using this, these insane terms. Uh, but, you know, the, and I'm sure they will fix that at some point, you know, fix in quotes because it'll be like less charming, but it's, it's like watching a kid uh, try to master something, you know? And it, it's like, what is, what is, what does, where do these come from? Is it like, is that how it thinks about the world? Like when, when I see, you know, my dog, like somebody actually has a, a really fascinating thread about this, which I think was like maybe partly debunked, but like figuring out, oh, you know, you type in birds and terms, you get out these weird little chunks of language, but if you then feed them back into the system, it like makes you birds again, you know? So, so not only are people trying to, you know, compose the poetry of good prompts, they're trying to figure out, well, okay, I look at this like hand lettered, beautiful graffiti. How would the computer describe that in words? And then how would I turn those words back around to make more art? Yeah. You one know? of the things so that, I just, it,
0: um, that, that Ken was doing, um, and I just pinned it to the, the space is, is producing money from like the Roman era in the style mm-hmm. that might have been used back then right with cross-hatching mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those types of styles and it's quite right. like you know believable i mean again you look at it and you're like hot dog fingers but nonetheless right. it's still believable uh to the to the, to the degree yeah. where i mean it allows you to imagine kind of unreal things that are plausible
3: yeah well let me give you one specific funny example so there's a guy named Guido coroni who works at adobe uh, I knew him from Pixar. He was there like 25 years. So he's actually the voice of Guido the forklift in the Cars movies. And um, uh, before he knew about Dalí, I forwarded him a tweet where somebody had posted images of a Lego Tesla in Manhattan. And uh, we, I didn't really give him enough context. I mean, like, I, I thought I did. And he looked at. Me, he's like, "Oh, these are great renderings." And I'm like, "They're not renderings. They're not models. That like they don't physically exist. This is something that." Somebody just told the computer to hallucinate. It did it, and at least, I'm sure, of course, if he looked more closely, he would have noticed something was off because, like you know, the little studs on the Legos yeah. are a little warped. Right. But um, come on, that's like but the still, last
0: again details, right? right? Perception. It's like, what, exactly. what did you expect to see? And you expect to see good looking Legos.
3: Yeah, literally yesterday, I accidentally fooled a friend because he has a pet uh, hedgehog. Uh, my son loves Legos, and somebody had posted they'd actually made like a life size Lego hedgehog and had it in um, an airport. So again, now I want to run everything and see, well, what would Dali make of that? So I go in and type Lego hedgehog in an airport, which I can tweet out the results, you know, in a minute. But, uh, and then it was so interesting to see what is its take on that. And instead of making something that approximated a, an actual hedgehog just made of Lego, which is what the, the human had done in real life, it made a bunch of Lego minifigs, but with hedgehog faces. And then it was trying to give them, like, rolly suitcases, but the suitcases were also hedgehogs, slightly and and so you're just like what is going on down there like with the the dolphins and the thumbs, like what are they doing and that is it for us monkeys you're like <laughs> the, I, we've all seen the writing on the wall we know it's coming you know i just went a devo uh interview yesterday and it's like just accept the the devolution man we are we are getting lapped by our own creations and you can at least enjoy it hopefully I'm
0: so yeah. well
3: freaky. Uh, yeah John-
0: I, I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, this is totally last minute, and you've been sure. a joy to, to bring in the pod.
1: You've been amazing, John, by the way. Absolutely yeah. thank, amazing. Thank Chris and I were uh, backstage talking. You're like our dream guest. Uh, oh. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yes, well, Chris, go ahead. Ask him for uh, plugs and things.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, um, John, we'd love to, to have you back, um, anytime as of course sure, this stuff sure. develops, or if you guys launch stuff, you know, at Adobe or whatever, if yeah, you share more of your sure. research, um, is there, you know, where, where can people find out more about you? Um, maybe, you know, check out your blog, your website, Twitter, et cetera.
3: Well, thank you guys. This is, I'm, I was, it was so, um, serendipitous. I was literally watching or walking my dog. I saw, you know, Ken's tweets about Batman and then I tweeted something in response and, and you jumped in and super, super fortuitous. So yeah, it's, a lot of fun. And, and I think this will be a great ongoing conversation because I really think we're just seeing the start of things. So yeah, just on Twitter, JNAC, J-N-A-C-K is my handle. Uh, there's a link in my profile. I'll take you to the blog, jnac.com slash blog. Um, there's a whole category on there of AIML stuff. Um, and so it, just if you click that, um, I, you know, I, it's funny. People kind of tease me like, oh, you still blog, That's so quaint. I know. So I've been doing it for 17 years. But the nice thing is then you get this at least um, searchable archive of, of interesting stuff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, t- check out what, like, NVIDIA is doing with GANs. Check out, you know, what Google's doing with Imagine. Um, obviously, I hope we'll have really exciting stuff to share soon. And, you know, I'd love to see what other folks are exploring. And, um, you know, I, I keep gently knocking on my grand mentee's door to try to get more folks access. I think uh, she's probably furiously trying to get to more machines stood up so they can get more people in. Um, and yeah, I I would love to keep the conversation going.
0: Amazing. Well, John, once again, thank you very much. Um, we are going to be, um, putting this recording out tomorrow on the tech meme podcast. So if you want to share it then, uh, it'll be available.
1: Get your copy today at ArcticWolf.com slash tech meme. That's ArcticWolf.com slash techmeme. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket.
0: We are going to actually talk now about another, I don't know, generation defining and also ending of an era. Um, <laughs> like, and and I, I suppose I'll tee this up just by sort of reflecting on my own career in technology. Um, and, and by the way, it's so it's so great to have someone like John come on, who's had you know a, a deep career in technology, has been through you know many. Evolutions, you know, from the very, very early days when we were building just like the primitives to where this stuff is gone now when you apply kind of you know deep learning and AI and all these futuristic technologies to solve human problems. And I guess to, you know, get rid of some of the shit work um, and it just, I, you know, I reflect back to my start in Silicon Valley in 2004 you know, the first thing that I worked on coming out here was the launch of Firefox. And I, I believed deeply in the mission of what Mozilla was trying to build. I believed in the mission of the web. I believed in removing gatekeepers. I believed in
1: Chris, this is an an encomium for Internet Explorer. And you're only talking about the competitor to Internet Explorer.
0: Well, I I, I am because I'm setting it up as as why Internet Explorer was such a Big part of the web, and also a big problem for the web, and why the demise of Internet Explorer, which is basically what we're talking about, is such a big deal personally for me, right?
1: Oh, this is interesting. So you you've come here to bury Internet Explorer, not oh, yes. to praise. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was coming here to like put the history hat on and be like, listen. Oh no, I'm, I'm putting tell a you... pin in
0: it. I, like, oh. it is done. Like I am <laughs> putting up the tombstone.
1: <laughs> oh, listen, to as all. As anyone that's ever tried to design a website uh, for, what, 25 years, I'm, I'm, we're all happy Internet Explorer is dead. Okay. But, uh, can I interrupt you?
0: Sure. And tell you, it.
1: can I give you, can I give you why it's important? And it's almost important. And you know what? It Maybe you're making me think of it differently because it's almost important to talk about the counterfactuals. Okay. Yes, sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. You know, I did the story today about how, um, you know, or was it yesterday? I can never remember. Um, uh, you know, Facebook being more TikTok-like or whatever. Look, the beginning of the modern era of, oh, my God, someone's going to eat our lunch. We're going to we're turn on all the ships, and we're going to completely pivot to something that was Bill Gates, Microsoft, 1994, um, Netscape is coming along. So uh, there's a template there of this is how we get, uh, religion on this new thing. We're, we're applying all of our resources to it. That's sort of a cadence for a startup, for a tech company. Uh, I would say, you know, this is the first modern, uh, version of that. Think of a counterfactual of, let's say, uh, Netscape doesn't get killed by Internet Explorer. Um, is uh, Mark Andreessen not one of the biggest uh, VCs uh, in the world? He's you know the CEO of maybe one of the most important tech companies in the world. Um, also think about uh, I've, I've, I did a whole bunch of episodes on the Internet History podcast about with, with people on the IE team, by the way, but like again, bringing the idea of I think they hired like a thousand people in a month. To throw on the IE team. Sure. That um, sounds reasonable. And they could, and they did. And then I continue to make the argument, everyone always pushes back on this, but if Microsoft hadn't been so aggressive against IE, now listen, for a decade they had been doing anti-competitive stuff, but it was the it was the Internet Explorer versus Netscape thing that caused the antitrust stuff to happen. Um, yep. and it
0: was the bundle had, they had a, a was monopoly the bundling, on the yes. operating system with windows, right? And right. they Essentially bundled in the internet browser, which for which there was a competitor in the marketplace. And now they used their dominance in operating yeah. systems to distribute a web browser. Now, of course there was a moment there where the web browser was actually built into windows Explorer. And so you right, could type in right. C colon slash slash to get to your hard drive, or you could type in HTTPS, and it was just a matter of protocol. And so the the web and the desktop were actually merged at one point, and it was almost like the the big mistake was splitting out the internet into its own application, that caused in some ways so much problem, so many problems for for Microsoft and for Microsoft. so.
1: And I'm going to bring in um, tweets from our friend Alex Kantrowitz, who can't be with us today because he's down in South America doing some crazy shit. Um, uh, Let's say the antitrust thing doesn't happen. Does Microsoft buy Amazon? Does it buy Google? Does it buy whatever? I still maintain that, and people always push back on me on that, but I still maintain that the whole Web 2.0, O era doesn't happen if Microsoft is not constrained, it doesn't have its hands tied and can't acquire people. So this is not really giving IE its credit for, we should really um, put
0: this uh, into Dolly and see what it comes up with.
1: (laughs) Okay. Real quick. And then, and then I'll let you uh, end with your thoughts on IE and especially (laughs) how shitty it was because it was shitty, but actually, so this is, this is Alex's uh, tweets that I'm, I'm reading about. Like, um, He he says. uh, So Microsoft kept Internet Explorer slow, and Google and response built Chrome. Um, Why would Microsoft have harmed its own browser? Simply, simple because if people could run programs on a fast browser, they would have used Windows. They wouldn't have to use Windows machines. They could do the same stuff on Apple computers. Blah 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 blah. And it's the whole Steve Ballmer era of the aughts, where it's uh, Microsoft's lost decade, pretending uh, protecting the, the Windows. Uh, Monopoly, uh, uh, um, Innovator's Dilemma, blah, blah, blah. But this is also, so they, they put Internet Explorer to a skeleton crew, Villa and Firefox, which I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to let you jump in there in a second. Um, but one more thing that Alex points out is uh, Microsoft only recovered after in, it invested heavily in the cloud Leading to Azure. And the person who led that effort was a middle manager named Sachin Adela. The person who led Google's Chrome project was a product manager named Sundar Pichai. So, for all of these sort of like, you know, uh, sliding doors moments of history, that's why I think Internet Explorer is interesting. But also, all right, I praised it or I didn't really praise it, uh, bury it. It was a shitty product, right?
0: <laughs> um, well, you, you certainly contextualized it. And
1: it, it, in fact, I mean, Internet
0: Explorer in the early days, I mean, it was actually like pretty good. Um, at least as far as browsers went, you know, compared to Netscape, Netscape was pretty primitive. Yes, uh,
1: listen listen to my episodes with um, uh, Ben Slivka and um, uh, I can't remember all the names, but whatever. It really was the better product. They Those thousand people... Right, exactly. Made I a better for product. A period.
0: Yeah. It was it was a much better product, and even Internet Explorer five for the Mac was a great browser. My, my friend Tante Celik worked on that, um, and and was one of the leading adopters of web standards. So there 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 were these interesting factions, and the lore of like web technology and web history, I think, is is super interesting and really relevant, especially for all the conversations happening in Web three today, where standardization is happening through very different mechanisms than kind of this like kind of NATO style, or, or I, I should say maybe um, UN style uh, standards body where everyone comes together. They kind of, you know, decide on a set of things that they want, you know, in the standard, everyone agrees to adopt them. They go off and they do their reference implementations and then they kind of like, you know, roughly conform. And it's funny, there there was a recent um, new effort to create a re-standardization or, or re-implementation of fitting to the standards more aggressively by all the different browser companies, but setting that aside, like the, the, the leapfrogging that was happening back then and the competition that was happening back there, I think was, was quite healthy. And then suddenly, you know, whether it was the road ahead, which Bill Gates wrote, you know, about the internet superhighway and, and all the rest, or just seeing that, as you, you pointed out, like the internet was going to be disruptive to Microsoft's business and especially an internet and a web that was not built in Microsoft technologies, IE active X, And, you know, Flash was also uh, rising at the time. All these companies wanted to own not just like the means of production, but the mediums of production. And they wanted to essentially define the substrate on which all applications would be built. This is why you see so many different, you know, large tech companies, you know, Apple, Google, et cetera, kind of inventing their own programming languages uh, in order to advantage their own infrastructure and their own platforms and systems. Now, at least there is, you know, several large companies that are competing with one another. But back then, you know, Microsoft moved aggressively to stomp out, you know, the threat of Netscape. And that actually imperiled the fate of the open and free web. So the reason why I'm like product aside, it was the strategy that Microsoft was taking on to squelch the open and free Internet that uh, or at least the open and free web that I have the most problem with the fact that I, as a high school student was able to learn HTML and write my first web page and publish it to the web without getting anyone's permission is what made me so dangerous and also effective. And also we're having the same conversations right now when it comes to free speech and who should have the privilege to be able to speak freely. And the web kind of removed that question and said, anybody should be able to publish. And then you know, obviously, since then, Web2 was kind of more about distributing reach and audience and, and access, but it was that, that, that prim, primary sin that I, I, that sort of turned me against Microsoft for at least a generation. Um, I do think it's interesting when you consider the people who are behind kind of the overall strategies and who's at the, the top of Google and Microsoft now. But when I think about the underlying fundamental technologies of enablement, of giving other people the permission to build and create and to publish and to share – Microsoft seemed to be very much about owning everything and everything reporting back to Redmond, as opposed to being kind of part of a global community um, that was seeking more people being able to contribute.
1: What they wanted is if, if you believe the conspiracy theories about web three, what they wanted was they wanted to take a VIG on everything. And the original sin to them of the internet was they couldn't take a percentage of everything that happened.
0: I mean, the fact that like office, you know, kind of is, is Microsoft's cash cow. Is because it's sort of necessary in order to open their their files, and if you remember, OpenOffice was meant to be a hedge against that tax being de- deployed on all you know upcoming nations and countries and people who couldn't afford the Microsoft fig. And, you know, Facebook has gone the same route. Like, I mean, this is a very common pattern in software development, but Microsoft was kind of like the first, uh, you know, evil empire of the, you know, uh, internet era, I guess, of the, the software era.
1: Yeah. Um, well, era. Uh, well, before them, it was IBM, as Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates both would tell you. And uh, I don't know. Before no, no, that exactly. was, I mean, it goes all the way
0: back, right? Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Every, every hacker, you know, kind of like sees themselves in this like heroic stance and then like they become, you know, the thing that they sought to, to replace. It's just, you know, what was, turtles all the way down.
1: What was the version of IE that even when, you know, we were designing websites for our companies in 2003, 2005, that we Mm -hmm. had to, you had to have a separate version of your website for? Was it IE4 or IE6 or something like that? I
0: IE6, I think, was the real, that was the one that probably came with Windows 98.
1: Um, We would literally do... Yeah. the website have all M- these
0: weird CSS kind of like you <laughs> yeah. know, hiccups in terms of how separately they like for this it. one. Yeah. Oh man. And there was so much malware and you know, it was just a whole era that people who grew up on, on the mobile internet yeah. will never have to deal with the fact that IE would crash all the time. And like you said, it was slow. It would deliver malware. Yeah. yeah but
1: listen, you, 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 you might've, there was a time when you created a separate mobile version and a separate, but we had to create a separate version for just one version of one web browser yeah, because exactly. it was too important. Because
0: yeah. it's so much, to, and the crazy thing is, and I think this will be like the last point on this. You know, you you did a story about this that uh, you know. Apparently, there are still what is it like uh, uh, in name, in, Japan, financial services, in Japan? yeah, financial services yeah. that in Japan that still require Internet Explorer in order to access those services. Like I can't even imagine or understand or comprehend what technologies that browser it's like cobol it's like what technologies is that browser offering that those banking services need to use that they can't migrate to some modern web browser you know what i mean like it breaks my brain like all the other security issues that are r- rife in that browser but yet they still have to use it for this other purpose i, I just um, don't understand it the but internet has how, how deeply embedded it is into you know people's livelihood still
1: uh, a lot of this did not make it into my book but if you're interested in the history of uh, Internet Explorer. I recommend the Hadi Partovi uh, episode of the Internet History Podcast. Uh, Chris, let's go. We've been we've been going an yeah. hour and a half. No,
0: this is great. This um, is, this, you know, I, 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 we covered a lot of stuff all over the place. Yeah. this is the way I, I like love it. it. So, anyways, yes, go ahead if you want to do your closing remark.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, is, is this my new thing? This is my uh, yes. catchphrase. Yes. I love everybody. <laughs> or is it, I love you all? What is it?
0: Um, which do you prefer? I, I, I love everybody kind of has a nicer, you know, inclusivity to it.
1: Yeah, but if... No, no, I love
0: you all. I if, think that's good. Yeah, go with that.
1: I love you all because that means I love the people listening. Yes. <laughs> I love you all. Later, everybody.